You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Pastor Jeff says this all the time. Of He's just so blessed to be able to stand down here and hear you guys sing. And I got to say that's the same for me. Um, I've been in many churches that just stand there and watch, just look, but they don't participate. But you guys sing, and I love that. You know, we don't really get this around here very much, but have you ever walked on a frozen lake? You know, my wife, she is from Fargo, North Dakota. Her family has a a lake house on one of the 10,000 lakes of Minnesota. And pretty much everybody around there has a lake house, um, just like everybody around here has a boat. Uh, But seeing people walk around on that lake is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Um, You know, you just, you see it in TV, but to see it with your own eyes is is something different. You know, not just walking around on that lake, but driving around on that lake. You know, driving their vehicles out to those little huts were even weirder for me this is not how you fish, but they cut holes in the ice and they sit out there in the freezing cold and fish. That's not fishing. Um, but uh, I'd never really seen this until I'd met her, until I went up there one January and saw this with my own eyes. But the question we're going to dig into today a little bit is this Is it your faith that allows you to walk on that frozen lake? You know, imagine for a moment. Me and my wife standing on the edge of that frozen lake, and we're ready to step onto that lake. You know, she grew up here. She's been here all her life. They moved to Fargo when she was two weeks old. She understands what she's looking at. She has total faith, total confidence in that frozen lake. But here I am, a southern boy. The furthest north I have ever lived is a little town called Lumberton, North Carolina. (laughs) And that's not a joke. I actually looked it up. In Alabama, in Texas, in Georgia, South Carolina, all of those were further south than Lumberton, North Carolina. So here I am looking at this lake, and I'm not quite so sure. You know, I've seen it on TV, but it's different when you're there again. So the question, though, is, is it her confidence does that, does her level of confidence and her faith in that lake, is that what makes it so she doesn't fall through the lake? And yet here I am over here with no confidence and I'm going to fall through the lake. That's not the way it works, right? What makes that lake hold you up is not your faith, but it's the thickness of the ice. Now think about that idea as we talk about a chair. You're sitting around uh, your kitchen table, uh, dining room table. You see the chair. You touch the chair. You move the chair. You can feel the weight of the chair, the solidity of the chair. You know from experience, because that is your chair. You've sat in that chair for years, right? You know that chair is going to hold you up. But is it your faith in that chair that holds you up? Or is it the chair that holds you up? It's the chair. But yet, in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we are called to live by faith and not by sight. 
So what does that mean? What does that look like? What then is faith? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that we can come to you today, that we can sit in this room with others today, that we can worship with our family in Christ today. And Lord, as we look deeper into what faith is and what it means to us as believers, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to understand what you want to teach us so that we can learn to love you more. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So what is faith? You know, kind of our general English working definition of faith is more like optimism or hopefulness. It's the way we kind of use it in a regular, in a regular daily conversation. You know, for most of us, faith is really nothing more than a maybe, kind of weighted a little bit more to whatever it is we're hoping for, right? Like Pastor Paul talked about last week, about his faith in the Dallas Cowboys, right? That they're going to pull it together this year, and they're going to win it all this year. Okay, well, maybe next year. Well, maybe next year. But for me, that's the Alabama Crimson Tide. Um, every year, man, that's my team. That's my team. Now, my faith tells me that my team can beat his team any week. Pretty much, right? But that's nothing more than optimistic hopefulness, right? Same way as his winning every year. But in biblical language, faith is, it comes from this Greek word called pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. And that means so much more. It's more closely identified with confidence, with trust, with belief, a moral conviction, especially as it relates to our salvation in Christ. It's an unwavering assurance. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it like this, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So biblical faith is more than optimism. Biblical faith is more than hopefulness. Biblical faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So that's what strong faith looks like. So having no faith is pretty easy to surmise too, right? We have no confidence. We have no assurance. We have no trust, none at all. But when I'm struggling with my faith, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not where I'm at. I'm kind of in this weird middle place. When I'm struggling with my faith... It's more like that phrase we hear Jesus say so many times, too many times, O ye of little faith. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. There are four places in the book of Matthew that talks where Jesus says this phrase, O ye of little faith. Uh, there's another one over in Luke, but it's one of the same stories we hear in Matthew. So four places. And the first one is in Matthew 6. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. And so right in the middle of that, Jesus is reminding those that are listening, reminding his disciples, don't worry. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body or what you'll wear. He talks about the birds of the air and how God feeds them, and they have nothing to worry about. He talks about the lilies of the field uh, who are clothed more, uh, in more splendor than even Solomon and his wealth. 
And then he asks this, if God takes care of these simple things, how much more will he take care of you? Oh, you of little faith, do not worry. And it's in this context that we hear Jesus teach us that our heavenly Father knows that we need these things. So seek first the kingdom of a God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the second use of this phrase is in Matthew 8. So right after the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has preached this sermon to this multitude of followers. And um, he comes down from this mountainside. This large crowd begins following him because they have heard his teaching and they're amazed. And, and they, uh, they notice that he teaches with an authority um, that they haven't heard before. And he heals a man with leprosy, and then he heals the centurion's servant. Even at that point, uh, Jesus says of this centurion that I haven't seen this kind of faith um, in all of Jerusalem. Then he heals many other people, including Peter's mother-in-law. And then he uh, heals several that are possessed by demons. But in chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus gets into this boat. This is a story that uh, Paul talked about last week. He gets into this boat with his disciples, and they set sail across this lake. And suddenly this violent storm rolls up. And it was so furious that the waves were crashing over the edge of the boat. And where was Jesus? Sleeping. Sleeping. Now, I can imagine, you know, I've been out on the lake fishing before, and I know that, that nice rolling waves, and that's pretty calming, and I can sleep during that. It's like being rocked to sleep, right? But I've also been out in the middle of the ocean during a swell and seeing 15-foot waves rattle our little fishing boat. That's not fun. That's what we're talking about here. And Jesus is where? Asleep. He has confidence. His faith. He knows God's going to take care of him. You think about this too. Even some of the disciples in the boat, they were seasoned fishermen. They had seen this thing before. They had seen this kind of storm before. They had been in this kind of storm before, possibly even on this lake. And yet they're afraid. But Jesus is asleep. And they come and they wake Jesus up and they say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And our favorite part of the story is when Jesus gets up and says, peace, be still. And the waves calm down, and the storms cease. We love that story. We love to see Jesus displaying his power like that, but don't miss what he says before he calms the storm. He says to his disciples, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? You know, did you not just hear all that I talked about on the mountainside, about the birds of the air? and the lilies of the field, and how God takes care of them. Did you, did you not see all these miracles, these people that I've healed? God is in control. Don't worry. So a third time that Jesus utters this phrase, he's not speaking to the large crowd like at the Sermon on the Mount. He's not speaking to a small crowd of disciples on the boat. He's speaking directly to a single person. In Matthew 14, he's speaking to Peter. So Jesus has, this, has compassion on this crowd that's following him. And um, he's healed many of their sick. And the disciples wanted Jesus to send them away so they could go into the towns to get some dinner. And Jesus says, they don't need to go away. Just you feed them. 
And so the disciples aren't exactly what, what, sure what they should do, but they find uh, five loaves of bread and a couple fish. And Jesus takes this, he blesses it, and he feeds 5,000 people, 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. And there's even like 12 basketfuls of leftovers, right? Well, then Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him to the other side of the lake so he can go and pray. And again, this boat is overcome with waves and wind and, uh, and buffeted because the wind was against it. All through the night, the disciples are fighting this storm. And then Jesus, shortly before the dawn, he walks out to them on the water. And the disciples see him from far away and they become afraid. They think he's a ghost, right? Jesus, knowing this, he encourages them, and he says, don't be afraid. But then we have Peter. You can almost see that he's stepping out of the boat as he's saying, Lord, call me to you. Call me to you. Tell me to walk on the water, and I'll come to you. So Jesus says, come. And sure enough, Peter steps out into the water, and he's walking on the water towards Jesus. But then Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he starts to notice the wind, and he starts to notice the waves, and what happens? He starts to sink. And he becomes overcome with fear. And he says, Lord, please save me. And Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and takes Peter and brings him out of the water. And he says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So the fourth time that we hear Jesus utter this phrase is in Matthew 16. So just a couple chapters later. Jesus has just fed another large crowd, numbering 4,000 men now, uh, besides the women and children, this time with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. Same kind of story, and this time there's seven basketfuls left over. Now, shortly after this very public miracle, the Pharisees and Sadducees come and they test Jesus. They ask him for another sign from heaven. And Jesus rebukes them and, and uh, then turns to his disciples and says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples, they thought he was talking about bread because they didn't bring enough bread. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, Aware of this discussion, he says this, he asks this, you of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Do you remember the five loaves for 5,000 and how many basketfuls that you gathered? Do you remember the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered there? How is it? that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. <coughs> Excuse me. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You of little faith. So those are the four accounts we have of Jesus using this phrase. Now, one of our favorite phrases is, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I know all of us are looking forward to that day when we close our eyes here and open our eyes in heaven, and we can hear Jesus say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But I doubt any of us 
would ever want Jesus to look at us and say, you of little faith. I don't know about you, but for as long as I can remember, I think, you know, you really mess up when you skip a page. Um, let's see. Uh, you know, I, I, this phrase, oh, ye of little faith, for me, I feel like this is a decree that, uh, that could be said about my life every day. Too many times a day. You know, why do I doubt? Why am I afraid? Why do I not believe? Why is my faith so small? And if you're anything like me, you beat yourself up with these kind of questions over and over and over. But as odd as this sounds, when Jesus uses this phrase, he's using it as an encouragement toward more faith. You have little faith. Let me help you. And there are three specific areas of teaching that Jesus uses this phrase for. One is in provision, one is a protection, and one is perception. The first one, provision. You know, have you ever wondered if God's going to provide for you? Have you ever wondered if he's going to provide for your family? I have. Well, consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. Does he not take care of them? Will he not also take care of you? Jesus is saying, I will provide for you. What about protection? Have you ever felt like God would not protect you in some particular situation? Well, consider Jesus calming the sea. Consider him immediately reaching down and pulling Peter up. Jesus says, I will protect you. How about perception? Have you ever struggled to understand or to see what God might be teaching you? Well, consider how he teaches us to guard our hearts against the untruths around us. Consider how he challenges us to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus says, I will teach you. I will instruct you. Now, now don't hear this phrase as Jesus mocking his disciples or in somehow uh, rebuking them. You know, I used to feel this way a lot. Like, like when Jesus says this phrase, he's rolling his eyes and he's saying, here we go again, you of little faith, you know, uh, why don't you believe in me yet? You know, what more must I do? But the key in experiencing God's provision, his protection, and his understanding is our faith. Does anybody have Hebrews 11.6 memorized? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Jesus wants us to please him. He wants us to please his Father. And so Jesus sought to build up his disciples' faith. He is seeking to build up your faith because he knows that faith is the key to our growth. Faith is the key to our deepening relationship with God our Father. You know, as Jeff preached a couple weeks ago, uh, towards the end of James, that, that James teaches us that the testing of our faith produces perseverance, which leads to maturity and completeness, not lacking in anything. Maturity. 
completeness, completeness, not lacking in anything, and I, I, that sounds pretty good to me. Sounds like a great place to be, right? Because faith affects everything, and that's why Jesus wants it to grow. So where does faith come from? Now, I don't know about you, but for as long as I can remember, I have kind of equated faith to courage. You know, like that first time you're on a tall diving board and you've got to build up this, this courage to take the leap. Or, or maybe there's a, a line of uh, people behind you waiting to get on that diving board. And so you build up this courage and finally you jump into the water. Or maybe it's like Indiana Jones and his leap of faith. I don't know if you remember that movie or not. Um, I don't remember which one of the four it was, but um, he's in search of the Holy Grail. And he goes through a bunch of different tests and trials and, you know, ducking all kinds of arrows and swords and all kinds of stuff. And he gets to this one place and he's at this pit, this canyon, this cavern that he can't even see the bottom of. He looks in his little book and it says, Leap of Faith. And he says, yeah, right. How can anybody ever jump this distance? You see his, his dying father in the other room saying, just believe, boy, believe, right? Somebody yells out, Indy, hurry. And so Indy starts to try to build up his faith, tries to build up his courage. And you see him working himself up. He lifts his foot up, and he's ready to step off into this pit. And he steps, and what happens? He lands on this invisible bridge, right? And now Indy's faith has saved him. Can you picture that in your mind? But faith is not like courage. We don't fabricate faith. We don't cause it to exist. We don't uh, force it into being. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the originator. Faith originates in him. It's sustained by him and through him. Also in Ephesians 2.8, it says faith is a gift from God. You see, it's not the quantity of your faith, how much you have. It's not even the quality of your faith, how good it is. It's about the source of your faith. Faith is all about relationship. Because God is all about relationship. You know, the whole of Scripture is the story of our relationship to God, or even better yet, God's relationship to us. You know, even from the very beginning, we see it's about relationship. You know, God is not creating uh, from somewhere else. He is in creation as he is creating it. We see the spirit hovering over the waters, you know. Uh, we see that John teaches us that uh, Jesus is the word. And when Jesus, or when God is speaking things into being, he's speaking it through Jesus. Uh, it is the, the, the word uh, through which things are made. God spoke, light was created. He spoke, the sky was formed. He spoke, the water separated, land came into being, the, the plants and the trees were created. He spoke, the sun and the moon and the stars were created. He spoke, and sea creatures and flying creatures were created. He spoke, land animals came into existence. And as amazing as this is, and as good as God proclaimed it, it gets even better than this. 
Because just as easily as he spoke all those things into being, he could have spoke mankind into being, but he didn't. Scripture tells us that basically he gets down on his hands and knees and pulls the dirt and the mud together to form human, humankind. Because he wanted a relationship with them that was different than the rest of creation, that was unique from the rest of the other living things he had created. So basically, he's getting down on his hands and knees and getting into the work. He wants a relationship with us. Even further evidence of his desire for relationship is when he created mankind, he didn't do it by himself. He said, let us make man in our image so that we see the Trinity getting involved. But it doesn't even stop here. Because he could have said, breathe, and this mound of dirt starts breathing. He doesn't. He breathes the breath of life into this mound of dirt, and it comes alive. He wants a relationship. You know, we could talk about a whole bunch of things in the Old Testament more about relationship, but let's fast forward to Jesus. Jesus leaves his place in heaven. He comes to be a man amongst us so that he can live the perfect life that we were no longer able to live, so that he could die this perfect atoning sacrifice that we couldn't provide anymore. He would rise again to defeat the death that came into being because of the fall of Adam and Eve. He then ascended into heaven to return to his throne in all power and all authority as a mediator between the holy God and the sinful man. And he did all of this so that he could repair the relationship between God the creator and man the created. But even more than this, as proof that God is all about relationship, he places his own spirit within those who believe, within those who repent from their sinful life. When they believe that Jesus did all of those things, that he is the Lord. How's that for a relationship? God is all about relationship. You see, faith is not something that we work up into a frenzy and that we leap into the unknown. It's not us coercing ourselves into digging deeper or just believing more. Faith is not the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, right? Faith is not some skill where we put something into it to try and weight one side to the other. You know, faith is not just optimism. It's not just hopefulness. Faith is relationship. Faith is about who we believe in. And we don't place our faith in a process. We place our faith in God and in God alone. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the originator and sustainer of our faith. We're to seek God and his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek the God who gives this faith to us as a gift, not of our own works so that we might boast, but as a gift Now, don't miss this part. This is, this is really kind of where the rubber meets the road. This is the application. You know, I know I've hammered this a lot, that faith comes from God. 
through Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that we play a completely passive role. You know, we can't just sit back on our fancy couch and eat our fancy grapes and expect God to somehow, like a, like a servant, to give us more faith whenever we need it. No, we have something to do. We have an active role in our own faith. And these four things are key areas. The first one is we must actively engage with God's Word. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is His communication with us. It's the way He teaches us. It's the way He speaks to us. We must read God's Word so we can know the God that sustains us. Secondly, we must preach the gospel to ourselves constantly. I am not very good at this. I need to do better at this. But Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing the message and the message by hearing the word of Christ. You know, Jeff has said this many times. It's not enough to come here and just sit under a message every week, uh, once a week, no matter how good that speaker or that message might be or wherever that might be. It's not enough to just do that once a week. We need to be speaking this gospel. We need to uh, take this gospel, this truth about who God is, about how much He loves us, about what He has done for us. We must constantly, daily, multiple times a day for me sometimes, we must preach this to our own souls because it's the truth, it's the hope that God brings. Number three, we must pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says we should pray without ceasing. You know, how can you hope to have a relationship with anyone if you don't talk to them? We must be talking with God in prayer. Not just asking for this laundry list of, of things that we want or even things that we need, but we need to be talking through things. We need to be expressing our hurts, revealing our struggles, even working through our angers, um, showing thankfulness, giving praise. We must pray. And fourth, we must endure through testing. Like we talked about with James earlier, he tells us that testing produces perseverance and maturity where we're lacking in nothing. I had a former pastor who used to say, um, every issue is a spiritual issue. Everything that you face, everything that comes into your life is a spiritual issue where God is trying to use that to teach you something about himself and your faith. God wants to know, wants us to know him because he's all about relationship. Sometimes he'll bring things into our lives that we don't like, that may be difficult or troubling, or sometimes we may perceive it as being downright wrong. But he knows that through our perseverance, it produces maturity in our faith. 
See, we have an active role in our faith, but it's not an active role like we're mustering up some sort of courage or strength from within. It's a resting in God's provision. Faith is a resting in God's protection, resting in His truth, recognizing that it's not our faith that holds us up, but instead it's the thickness of the ice. It's the solidity of the chair. What holds us up is the Almighty God. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you. We love you. Lord, we know that our faith is too often weak. That we too often have little faith. But Lord, we know that you love us. We know that you've proved that love over and over and over again. And that we are able to come into your presence to, uh, to learn, to be taught by you, to grow in our relationship with you. And so, Lord, we come to you humbly, asking that you increase our faith, that you'd help us to do those things of reading more of the Scripture daily, of preaching the Gospel to ourselves more often, of praying constantly. having the strength and endurance to persevere. So Lord, forgive us where we fail you and uh, just help us to love you more. How we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.